It's great to see you guys out tonight, and I want you to, first of all, before you start grabbing your Bibles and everything, let's just take a moment, and I want you to welcome home Claude Blake, who was baptized here last Saturday night. It's always exciting. We love to celebrate life change that we see going on, not just on the weekends when we're here, but throughout the week and our college campuses where our students are at, I'm going to try to get you some photos in the weeks ahead because you need to see the impact that they're having on their schools at USI, at IU, different places where our students are at, not to mention right here at home in our high schools and in our middle schools. Welcome home Jim and Kyle Brock who came and placed their membership last Sunday morning. <clears throat> along with Charlie and Paige Davis, who also joined the church this last Sunday morning. Now on your way in, you received a program tonight and inside is a welcome home card. Let us know what God's doing in your life. On the back, there's a discover section. All we need is your name and a contact number. If you're in our system, if you're not, then give us the full load so that we can reach out to you and send you our weekly email updates. But we want to pray with you. We want to share life with you. And part of that is sharing the discoveries that we're making in Christ and the next steps that we are are taking. Well, tonight we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. We've been going through the Gospels. We've been going through the Bible from cover to cover. And tonight we see an awesome connection that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11. You remember the Tower of Babel? Back that we didn't get to do a sermon on that during this series, but the Tower of Babel, when God, everyone was of one race, one tongue back then. And God, this is after the flood, he took the people in he scattered them throughout the world and gave them different dialects, different languages. And tonight we're going to see all of this come back together in an event that many are familiar with, but maybe not quite the connection with the Old Testament. That's in Acts chapter 2. Now, while you're finding your place, I want you to think about your first encounter with Christ. Your first encounter with Jesus Christ, if you want to refer to, to him as God as well, we've got the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about your first encounter with him. I want you to think about your first encounter with his church where you and I are a part of his family when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. How did you come to faith in him? What were the circumstances? Now, for some of you, maybe you were like me. There's a few of us who were blessed to grow up in the church. And so coming to a relationship with Christ was kind of gradual. It just seemed part of our growing up. For others, maybe you came to Christ in the middle of a life-threatening situation. An accident, an illness occurred. Maybe you had an out-of-body experience that caused you to wake up and look for God. Maybe for you, like one of my friends tonight, it was the lyrics to a song at a gathering like this or at a concert, and, and you heard, you heard songs that maybe you had heard before, but this time something penetrated your heart, something woke you up, and that's where your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with God began. Now, here's what I want you to think about tonight. 
is I want you to think about the role that the Holy Spirit played in all of that. We talk a lot about God. We talk a lot about Jesus. But tonight, in thinking back to how you came to relationship with him, what role did this third part of God, this Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity, what role did he play in your first encounter with Christ? And what does his role look like today as you continue to walk with him? You see, Acts chapter 2 describes the encounter of thousands of individuals who came to Christ in a moment, in a moment in time. And while this account's familiar, I want you to step inside the details tonight, just like we have the last several weeks, right? We've looked at some very, very familiar encounters. And tonight, I want you to work extra hard with me to watch for the Holy Spirit's role in the life of Peter and the life of those listening in on this amazing event that took place in Acts chapter 2. Now, as we prepare our minds, let's bow our heads and let's pray before we dive in. Father, as we open up your word tonight, may it speak to us loud and clear. I know that you are speaking to us. You are always speaking to us. Whether it be through your written word, whether it be through the preaching of your word, whether it be to songs that were inspired by your word. Father, the circumstances of our life. Romans says that all of creation speaks to your existence. And so, God, you are speaking. Help us to listen and help us to credit you with where credit is due for the way that you have drawn us to yourself, the way that your Holy Spirit works in and around us who have come to faith in you. And for those that are outside of that faith tonight, God, may they be open to the beckoning of your spirit's call on them. And so, Lord, open up our hearts and our minds just as you did these early believers in Acts chapter 2. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we ask this. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they... Now, who are the they? They are around 120 of Jesus' earliest followers. They were all together in one place. Suddenly, it says, a sound like the blowing of violent wind. Now, notice it says a sound like the blowing of violent wind. There was no wind, but you could hear it roaring and raging around them. It came from heaven, and it, the sound filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw, they saw, look, what seemed to be. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of these 120, not just one or two, but everyone in the whole room. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, remember, I gave you a clue just a minute ago. Where are these people from? They're from every nation. Where did they come from? Why every nation? Why Jews in every nation? Because God split them up back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Now he's brought them back. There are representatives from every nation under heaven that are right here staying in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because each one 
heard them. Who's the them? The 120. Heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? It, it would be like us at a large, large gathering. Let's say that we're in the mall of Washington, D.C., and people from all around the world had gathered there. And every person on the platform is from Memphis, Indiana. All right? And we're all speaking Memphis, right? That, that, that little bit, we sound like we just escaped from Kentucky, some of us, right? But generally speaking, we all sound, if you're born and raised around here, we all sound kind of the same in our dialect, right? We all speak some form of English. It might be Kentucky slang, but it's English. And all, and all of these other people, they know that we're from Memphis, Indiana, but in that crowd of millions, in this case, thousands, in that crowd, they hear us speaking Memphis. They know that we're speaking Memphis, but they hear their own language. 17 or more different languages being spoken. They understand, and it says that they were amazed and perplexed, verse 12 and 13 say. And so they asked one another, what does this mean? Can you, can you imagine? What's this mean? And some, some smart aleck piped up and said, well, they're all drunk. They've had too much wine. And, and that is such a silly statement, but, but that's what we do when we see the amazing, the miraculous, right? Is we automatically put it off to something that we can put our minds around. They, they must be drunk on new wine. That doesn't explain though how the thousands heard these Memphis people speaking their, their language. Now, as amazing as it must have been to see what looked like tongues of fire, to hear what sounded like raging winds without any wind blowing, I want us to look beyond the obvious. You see, this, this is where we limit the Holy Spirit in all of these signs and wonders, but there's so much more going on. All of these outward signs were to do what? They were to point us to the unseen Holy Spirit of God. Just like in the Old Testament, when the Spirit descended on Christ, it wasn't a dove that landed on him, it was like a dove. God put his Spirit in the form of something that was recognizable. And here, this is what God's Spirit is doing. It's coming down on these 120. They're being filled with the presence of God. Now, the wind, the appearance of fire, all these physical descriptors are simply being used to describe the indescribable presence of God. Remember Moses and Elijah and others in the Old Testament and the miracles of God's presence that came in fire and a burning bush, the, the earthquake, the wind that were just symbols Immediately after unleashing his Holy Spirit on these early believers that were gathered in verse 14, we see Peter, remember Peter from just a couple weeks ago, Peter who was walked on water, Peter who had the courage to get out of the boat, Peter who denied Jesus. In verse 14, it's Peter who God directed to stand up before this crowd of thousands that were coming in that were so caught up in these signs and wonders that were going on 
and explain what the people were witnessing. So here's the explanation, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. He's speaking to a specific group at this moment. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And the first thing that he says is these men aren't drunk as you say they are. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Instead, what does he do? He turns to the truth as the people in the crowd know the truth to be. He turns to the book of Joel in the Old Testament. And he quotes Joel in the Old Testament just as he could have quoted Jeremiah, just as he could have quoted Ezekiel, who said very similar things in their prophecy. He says in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, he describes how God promised that this day would come. That this day when they would be awakened to the reality of who Jesus Christ is through the power of his Holy Spirit. And Peter goes on to tell them there in those following verses. I won't read it all. You can read it as I'm talking. Peter goes on to tell them that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that God had promised. And that this reality had been validated to them by the miracles, by the signs and the wonders that Jesus himself had performed. The things that God did among them through Jesus. And then in verse 36, Peter takes all of this. He, he takes a prophecy from King David from the Psalms. He takes all of this and Peter summarizes the truth with these words. Words that would cut to the heart of those listening. He said in verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So here's where I want to begin tonight. Tonight we answer the question of how, what is God's plan for reaching the world with the gospel message of Jesus Christ? So why not go back to the very beginning, right? where it all started. God's plan for reaching the world then and reaching the world today with the life-giving, life-saving, life-transforming message of the gospel is the Holy Spirit. The emphasis is on the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in you and me. Acts 1.8 after being raised from the dead, after Jesus spent 40 days among the people, we talked about that last week, making his appearance. Just before ascending into heaven, he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you, speaking to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and what? to the ends of the earth. Again, I remind you, all of these thousands who have gathered, where did they come from? They came from every nation under the sun. Some of them already believers in God. And what were they to do now? They were to go back and to tell what they had seen and what they experienced. You, he says, will be my witnesses, and I'm going to give you the power to do it. Now, this word power comes from a, a Greek word, and I, I very rarely do this. I told you guys a month or two ago, 
you do not have to know Greek and Hebrew to understand the Bible. That's why I don't throw it out there all the time. But you know, every once in a while, if you get a little bit bored and you want to dig just a little bit deeper, sometimes it's really fun to pick out some of these words and to go back because the Greek language, the Greek language was so much better, so much more descriptive of things. And in the Greek, which the New Testament was written in, the word for power comes from the word dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. Dynamite. Does that not give you a, a better image of the power? It's, it's like God putting dynamite inside of us, this dunamis power within each and every follower of Jesus. And the thing that I want you to see is that of these 120, there were no exceptions. They all received this power, and there are no exceptions today. When you repent of your sins, when you confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, when you are baptized into him, you receive this dynamite power inside of you. It doesn't matter your position. It doesn't matter your size or your economic status. It doesn't matter your race or your gender or your age. And while Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 details how in an instant the church was born and God's spirit was unleashed on that early church, the thing that you're going to notice or that you've already noticed as you're reading along in F260, right? We've read several chapters in Acts this week. What do we see? We see that in every chapter, we see the power of the Holy Spirit moving among God's people as the gospel message is spread throughout the world. See, God's power, his presence, his spirit living inside of you and me, that's God's plan for reaching the world. You see, the Holy Spirit is the witness enabling. The Holy Spirit enables us as witnesses. It's God glorifying, right? It's not us who gets the credit. It's the Holy Spirit doing things in us that we could never do on our own and I'm not talking about speaking other languages, even though in this case, that's what God did. Why did he do that? Because there were people there from other languages. This was not some type of babble that, that no one understood. It's very clear here the purpose for this gift. And that was for people to understand. That's his plan for reaching the world. The supernatural power experienced in the believer transforms our life and our transformed life is to instantaneously bring glory god glorifying in our actions and deeds that follow the holy spirit is the witness enabling god glorifying supernatural power for christ's church now the job of a witness anyone here had to be a witness at a trial a, a witness in a court proceeding, an official proceeding. I know some of you have because some of you spent hard time. I, I know at least you had witnesses speaking against you. But I, I remember my first time serving as a witness. I thought it was going to be so cool. It was mortifying. And, and, and this past week, Jake talked on Wednesday night about how we are called to be Christ's witnesses, right? He, he, he prepped us for this weekend by giving us some great, great insight. One of those insights is how challenging it is for us 
to share what we think we need to share, to convince, we think, someone else to come to relationship with Jesus Christ. But I, I want to break this down a little bit because I think this makes some sense and will make some sense to you. And that is a witness has a responsibility and that first responsibility is to tell what he or she knows. Not what you think you know, not what someone else has tell, told you to know, but what you know. And that was hard for me because when I was on that witness stand, it was in a trial against political figures who were corrupt. And I had had to trace all of these funds. I had these, back before computers, I had all of these big charts and I had pictures of the checks and then I had the arrows and then I had a picture of them and then an arrow, right? It's very, very clear. It's very, very clear. And I wanted to explain every detail and how it got there, but all, all they wanted to hear was how we got from A to be, because the more you just rattle off, the more of a hole you dig for yourself when it comes to being cross-examined. And isn't that what we're afraid of as Christians when it comes to being witness? We're, we're afraid of the cross-examination. And sometimes we get ourselves into trouble because we start off by telling people things that we don't even know ourselves, things that we think that we should tell them. We, we even go with our list. And there's nothing wrong with being prepared. Don't get me wrong. But our first responsibility as a witness is to simply tell what we know, what we have seen, what we have seen or heard firsthand. We are one who furnishes evidence. Peter had firsthand knowledge, and we've talked about that. Peter had firsthand evidence of Christ. And it is this evidence affirmed by Scripture that Peter speaks to the crowd. He relays facts. He relays truth. Personal knowledge. Matthew 28, 19, I remind you. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not in your goodness. Listen, when you guys have the privilege of baptizing someone up, up here, which you notice I do very little of, because you who are leading people to Christ by being a witness, you're the one that they've looked to. It's your evidence. But when you come up here, please don't tell us all about what you've done. Tell us about the person and what Christ has done to bring them to this point in their life. Matthew 28, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded, God says. Not what you think, not what someone's told you, but the truth, this is what we bear witness to. Another responsibility of a witness is that a witness shares what he or she has experienced. This happened to me. I once was living this way. Now I find myself in a place that I've never thought that I would be in my life. Now, I want you to hear me on this. If you haven't experienced Jesus, you can't be a witness for him. I, 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 just a little frustration this week. I, 
I, I really appreciate our Bible colleges and, and, and professors who have a wealth of knowledge. But how can a man teach someone how to preach who has never preached in their life? It's the same way with you and I and Christ. What Christ does in us can only be spoken by the person in whom he has done it. A witness shares what he or she has experienced. So how do you experience him? And this is important. How do you experience him this way? By allowing him to live inside of you. That's where the Holy Spirit resides, is inside of you. By knowing him through his word. I was asked last night at a football game, terrible tragedy in the life of a young person. The parent is mad at God. I'll tell you, I've had a lot of bad things, a lot of people taken from me in my life, and I have no reason to be mad at God because God has not broken a single promise that he has made to us. Where do, where do we get off with that? It's, we get off with that because we don't know him. And we don't know his word because if we know him and we know his word, then we realize exactly where the blame is at. The blame is right here. The blame is in a world that's spinning out, not out of control because God's still in control, but is spinning out with the influence of godless people who are making godless choices. And some of those godless people are people who call themselves Christians. By allowing him to live inside of you, by knowing him through his word, you experience him. By applying his teachings to your life and walking in obedience to them. By letting him guide you day by day, giving you strength to face your trials and courage to conquer your fears and not giving up when you get butt hurt. Or when you get frustrated. Amen, or when you get tired. It's hard, isn't it, Scott? No, it is. It is. But you see what's going on, though, right? When you give up, what are you doing? You are negating the opportunity that you have to know him and experience him firsthand. We all do it. I do it. You see, we often want a miracle from Jesus. We want to be healed of cancer. We want a life spared in an accident. We want a relationship to be restored without us having to apologize. But the real miracle is that he can take any one of us and restore us to relationship with the Father. That is the miracle. We are a witness to God's dynamite transforming power personally. And we get to speak of it. And we get to be evidence of it. Our story is a result of it. My friends, we do not have a story without his transforming power having his way in our life. That is where the story is. You see, above all, the witness testifies to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, all I've got to do is tell him Jesus rose from the dead. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power living inside of us that's transforming us. Now, before we go any further, let me help you here. 
please hear me. You don't have to convince anyone that they need Christ. Your job is not to convince anyone that they need Christ. Hear me, because it goes against what half of you have heard. You don't have to convince anyone that they need Christ. My job isn't to convict you, to persuade you, to argue him with you. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is to share the truth about Jesus. Your job is to share the truth of his word. Your job and my job is to share our experience with him and help others recognize the resurrected Christ. Peter showed the crowd the crucified and resurrected Jesus through his knowledge of Christ, through his experience with Christ, what he knew to be true. And verse 37 says that they interrupted his sermon. What a day that would be. <laughs> what a day that would be when someone would stand up in a service and to say, what do I do then? How am I to respond to this reality? Holy Spirit, you have touched me today. May I not make another move without asking you, what shall I do? When the people heard this, verse 37 says, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? <coughs> and you say, how do you know they interrupted? If you go down, you look at the end of the chapter, it says that Peter continued and spoke many more things. <laughs> they stopped him dead in his tracks. But let me ask you again, what was it that cut to the heart? Was it the sound of the wind? Was it? Is, is that what cut them? Is that what caused them to say, what shall we do? Y yes or no? No. No. Was it the tongues of fire? What an amazing event that must have been. No. The miracle of hearing the immediate translation of Peter's words in their ears without a physical translator, was it that that cut to the heart? No. Was it the great illustrations, the skinny jeans Peter wore with, with rips in them? Yes. Girls, I cannot wait. I cannot, that's a worship leader right over there. It's all about skinny jeans. Boy, the day Dan wears skinny jeans, it's over. Girls, I'm so excited. I finally, I, I don't know how you all find all these jeans with rips in them. I've had a pair of jeans for four years, and last night I sat down, and they finally ripped. I can't wait to wear them. I can't wait to wear them for you. That's why I'm sporting these new pants. I found them on sale for $14. My friends, it was the truth that cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Jesus tells us in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The truth does that. It guides us, it points us, it convicts us. It humbles us. It can break through the hardened walls the unbelief, the choices we've made in the past, the untruths that we've accepted as truth because wise and gifted speakers in skinny jeans, social media posts that seem right, that were so persuasive, but the truth cuts through it all. This is what God's spirit does. God's spirit, the spirit of truth, 
it exposes the error of the godless world's view of sin. I want you to think about that for just a minute. The spirit of truth, that's what he's ultimately doing. Is he's exposing the error of the godless world's view of sin. You talk about something that's upside down today. According to politics, professors, the media, today's watered-down religion, Hollywood, sin is to not only be tolerated according to them, but it's to be accepted as right. But that's not truth. The truth is this. The truth is that sin, which is tolerated, leads to separation from God. And unrepentant sin leads to death. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 8, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he'll expose the error of the godless world's view of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He'll show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin, that righteousness comes from above, where I am with the Father, out of their sight, out of their control. I love that. The world and their filth has no control over God or Jesus Christ or his Holy Spirit. Where I am with the Father out of their sight and control, that judgment takes place as the ruler of this godless world is brought to trial and convicted. That's the truth that cut through the heart of the crowd. And my friends, the Holy Spirit is doing the very same thing right now. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to you who want to know if God's presence in your life is real. If you're seeking, he's talking. Those of you who don't know who to trust, he's speaking. Trust me. Who wonder if real love can be experienced and found. He's the author of love. He's speaking to you who are living opposite of his desire, his desire for your life. Those of you who wonder why pain and suffering surround you and is so deep and leaves you feeling hopeless. Will you ask the question, the question that the people in verse 37 ask, what shall I do? Will you not cry out? You don't have to do it out loud, but will you not do that right now? Holy Spirit, Jesus, God, what, what shall I do? You see, the Holy Spirit awakens us with the message of truth, both before we come to Christ and he continues to reveal all truth as we respond to him. And then the Holy Spirit answers our question. He addresses our dilemma in verse 38. Peter said, here's what you do. Repent. Turn to God. Be baptized. Every one of you. That means regardless of what your heritage is, regardless of how good you think you are right now with God because of what someone else did for you, you repent, you, not your mom and dad, not other people, you repent, you be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sin and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. You hear what he's saying? If we followed the teaching of the world and believe that we created ourselves, that we're our own God, that wrong is right and there's no sexual order or creative order, that we're unaccountable or that we are accountable to no one but ourselves, the Spirit implores us to turn. 
The Spirit says repent of all of that. Turn from that. Turn to God who is your creator, who shares his position with no one, whose ways are to be obeyed and our lives brought into alignment with his spirit. Now, yes, as your pastor, I plead with you. I plead with you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. But listen, it's God's spirit who's calling you. I can't do that. Oh, I could manufacture an emotional event. But it's God's spirit that calls you. It's his words that are penetrating your heart. It's his truth that shines a light on the secrets that you're still trying to push and hide in the dark. Romans 6.1 describes it this way. When we're awakened to the reality of our sin, we are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 5 goes on to tell us that if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but now freed from sin. This is God's plan for reaching the world his way. It's his Holy Spirit. Now I want to quickly address two immediate questions that I know come to mind the most when we're awakened to this reality. And the first is, why do I have to be baptized? Why do I have to be baptized? Why not just raise a hand and say a prayer? Well, well, first of all, that prayer's not in the Bible. Just to be clear, remember we talked just a minute ago, that's a big problem with us trying to persuade people is we try to persuade people by making things up. And then we wonder why they don't get it or why, why they come back later and have trouble with it. There's nowhere in the Bible that we just pray a prayer. Why isn't my parents' faith in having me sprinkled as an infant enough? Well, the short answer, the short answer to that is that after Jesus' ascension into heaven and the launch of his first church, which we've read about and looked at tonight, the model given to us in Scripture for coming to relationship with Christ is that we turn to him, we repent. And you can't do that as a baby. That we profess him with our lips. You can't do that as a baby. That we be baptized then into him through immersion, baptizo, burial, at sea. Another useful word in Greek. Why do I have to be baptized? We're baptized for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The second question is, great, God forgives me. He frees me. But how does change really happen? (laughs) Right? I come up out of the water. I've still got the same, same issues. <laughs> they don't all go away. I can't tell you how many people I've, I've seen come to Christ and we go back in the back room and, and things are a mess. I'm like, hey, now you know. A little disclaimer here, right? You know that when you come up out of the water, the, the one thing that you can be certain of is that you have God's spirit living inside of you and he can change everything. But the circumstances that you're in in your life, those are still there. The pig squeals that are in your mind, they're, they're still there. But now you have his power to walk with you. It doesn't erase everything. So how does this change happen? 
When, when I'm still in a relationship that isn't God-honoring, how, how do I change when I'm not sure how to change? The Apostle Paul answers it this way. Let's, I'm going to let Scripture speak. The Apostle Paul, who was changed, his life was changed in an instant. He went from being the opposite of Christ to wanting to be all, all that he could be in Christ. I thank Jesus Christ, my Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful. Okay, so how did change happen? Strength that came from Christ. He appointed me to his service. God has a purpose for every one of us who come to him. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and just a downright disgusting man, I was shown mercy. God shows us all mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief when I was that way. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. And my goodness, God is still in the business of pouring his grace out on us abundantly, day by day. Thank him, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and amen. It's the third responsibility of a witness. You thought I forgot, but I didn't. The third responsibility of a witness is a witness points the world to Christ by their gratitude, by their faithfulness, and by their loyalty to the end, to the end, not just for a season. The word for witness is martyre, from which we get the word martyr today. It means being loyal to Jesus no matter the cost, no matter the opposing powers, to the end. We don't go back and forth. We don't compromise. We're faithful because we're grateful. And we may remain true to him because there's no other way but him. I was with several friends. Dan, if you guys want to go ahead and come. I was with several friends Tuesday morning. It's one of the highlights of my month, even though, just like some of you guys are, the way you kind of see church, right? is it costs something for us to take time out of our week to be with other people. <laughs> it, it cost us something. And I was the one hosting, so I really couldn't get out of it. And I, I had a group of these friends come up, and I did what I do. I love to cook for them. But I'll tell you, it was I who walked away with such a powerful message from one of them. You see, one of my friends is under palliative care for stage four cancer. He's very, very, very sick with cancer. When he was diagnosed a few months ago, he was telling us yesterday, he had not revealed this to us until yesterday or this week. But he said he looked over at his wife and he simply said, it's our turn. I want you to think about that. This man's just a couple years older than I am. He's young. He's just now experiencing grandchildren. I'm just now experiencing children. 
He's been in ministry all of his life. You would have thought it'd be okay for him to say, why me? Right? It's okay for Christians to say, why me? It would have been okay to say, hey, uh, Marsha, why, why, why us? <laughs> why, well, we've given our whole life to him, and they have. My goodness, they have given so much of their life for him. Why us? But simply, he said, it's our turn to be a witness to the world as a Christian who has cancer. It's our turn. So I ask you tonight, looking back at your first encounter with Jesus in his church, I want you to go back there with me if you haven't. Going back to that first encounter with him, can you see the Spirit's role in any of that? I've told it over and over again. Sitting right down here, second or third row, I was 10 years old. And for weeks, I, I just felt this nudge. And it was so strong that I would cry. I'm not a crier. I'll never be dehydrated from crying. And for weeks, I would cry. And I, I would just, I would move over to the edge and I wouldn't go. And finally, the day came when I stepped out and I walked forward. And I cannot tell you the relief that came over me when I surrendered my life to Jesus. I grew up in the church. I wasn't afraid of anything or anybody in that church. It was my home. But yet for weeks, and that, that looking back, that was the Holy Spirit encouraging me, saying it's time. Can you see the Holy Spirit's role in your life? There weren't any flaming tongues of fire. I didn't come up out of that water speaking some different language. I've never spoken that. Now, some of you have, and good for you. It's the lesser of the gifts, though. But can you see the Holy Spirit's role? What about this moment right here? What about his role in this very season of your life that you're going through right now? that has you wondering, that has you retreating, that has you butthurt. Can you see that it's your turn? Can you see that it's your turn to let the Spirit of God have his way with you? Your turn to reach the world God's way? Amen. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. And I'm sorry I was long, Lord. Not as sorry as this crowd is, but I'm sorry. But Father, I can't think of a more powerful message that you have given me than this one. Because it gets right down to the heart and soul of what you did 2,000 years ago. When you laid your life down for us, that we could be new with you. And then you went to heaven to prepare a place for us where you wait for us. And what did you do? You sent something even better than you. The Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, to comfort us, to lead us in all truth. And the only thing that you ask of us is that we would surrender to that Spirit and that then the evidence that's found in that that we, Father, would tell the world the truth of who you are, the truth of what we've experienced, and that, Father, we would be faithful to it. 
and not give up and not throw mud on it, not blame it, but exalt it and exalt you. Father, it's our turn. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Empower us through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, if you'd like to come and be baptized. Tonight, if you're trying to answer that question, what must I do? Then David's going to be back there. I'm going to be right here. Just step out in the aisle and I'll meet you. You don't have to be like I was. You don't have to stand there and cry. You just step out and I'll take your hand and I'll help you the rest of the way home. Let's see.